0: We made this. Ladies and gentlemen, it was a cold-blooded, premeditated murder.
1: Hi everyone, welcome to another super special episode of Red and Buried Podcast. I'm Sarah.
0: I'm
2: Frankie.
1: And we have another special guest, the lovely Jack Dew is with us today. Hello, Jack.
0: Hello. It's wonderful to be here.
1: Thank you for joining us. We normally start interview episodes with a little bio that Uh-oh. Frankie writes. If anyone's
2: listened to more than one episode of this, they know that I do everything, I think, at this point. <laughs> you don't yeah, I,
1: I just show up, basically. Sometimes I've read a book.
0: <laughs> it helps, <laughs> but, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I have always read the book. I would just like to clarify. <laughs> I've got a,
2: a base. <laughs> it's grateful for your time, Sarah, as always. So Thank you.
0: Listen, the the, um, the funny sidekick is a valuable role, even if you haven't read the book. So that can be your thing. If you you. read it. It's fine. I don't mind. I don't <laughs> don't mind.
1: encourage me because Frankie <laughs> will absolutely lose it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Everything's fine. Right. So on to the bio. Jack Dewars is a filmmaker and writer. His career has been spent telling stories in all media and his body of work includes film, TV and digital media. His films have been shown at dozens of international film festivals, including Cannes, New York, Marseille, Dublin and London's Fright Fest, garnering multiple accolades, including an award for the Royal Television Society and a nomination for Best Short Film by BAFTA Wales. He is also the co-founder of the publishing company Moonflower Books, a young UK independent publisher of commercial fiction. The Lost Diary of Samuel Pepys is his first novel, which reimagines one of Britain's greatest historical figures through a 21st century murder mystery lens. Currently living in Surrey with his wonderful wife and scene-stealing dogs, Jack is one of the kindest, most generous people you could ever meet.
0: I was going to come out with some sort of quip, but that was a really lovely intro. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you. I take sole credit for it. So thank (laughs) you very much. Yes. You, you do get the praise as
0: well. Talking of scene-feeling dogs, just I'm going to apologize in advance in case Busby, the puggle, is asleep on the sofa to my right. And if you hear a noise like a kind of possessed muppet, it just means that he's woken up and he's seen a bird outside the window <laughs> or something like that. So
2: he's on alert. That's yes, a good way to be. Eye alert at all times. I was uh, lucky enough to meet both Busby and Jack and his lovely wife at Harrogate. I keep talking about Harrogate because I really did get quite a lot of meetings done there, which was really nice. But um, I met you guys there and I have to say, hanging out with you guys was one of the highlights of my whole weekend, because you're both so lovely and you're both so fascinating and interesting, and you've got so much cool stuff going on. So I could just listen to you guys tell stories all day, basically. Oh, that's
0: so- true. To you say it was absolutely a highlight for us too. I think, you know, by by the end, we sort of like bonded over Poirot and various other things and um, <laughs> God, the most incredible secondhand bookshop in Harrogate. Um, oh my God. I know, with all the kind of signed out the Christie first editions and things like that, uh, but, you know, it, yeah, we just really got on. And by the end, we would just go kind of like, friends. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> different. friends.
2: And that's the other thing, because you also know uh, are friends with my other co-host Adam Roach, who I do the Pyro podcast with. You've worked with him a few times.
0: Yes, absolutely. He, um, Adam, who I've, I mean, I've been a supporter and kind of you know social media friend of Adam almost since the beginning of his uh, Secret History of Hollywood. Um, and he did a voiceover for me on a project I did. Oh, it was, Long story short, it was a series of films based around poetry that was, like, kind of extremely old, um, called Inverse. And he did who did the voiceover for the first episode, which is basically ancient Egyptian erotic love poetry. And <laughs> he's got a <laughs> good Mr. voice for that. voice himself. <laughs> it was absolutely perfect. Um, yeah, he very kindly did, did some work for me then. But yeah, mostly I just, I, I know and like and support Adam kind of, uh, you know, in the sort of social media sphere and, and I'm a fan like everyone else. And of course, of your new venture as well. The, Thank um, you. The labels of the labels, the labors. <laughs> we don't <laughs> like usual. labels, Jack. Don't like labels, no. <laughs> uh, which I'm very much enjoying, and yeah, uh, that's that sort of covers it. I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And we are also this is actually because he may listen to this. He I think he sometimes listens to the podcast. So, Adam, uh-huh. we will arrange for you to actually meet Jack in person. We're gonna do a an in-person hangout at some point. So
0: that would be absolutely lovely. We can talk his ear off about um Madame Satan, which is a film I should emphasize. I love
2: Madame Satan. <laughs> oh my god,
0: isn't it amazing? I oh, think so that good. blows my mind about Madame Satan, which um I should should say for the listeners is a uh it's a pre-code. Well, melodrama, comedy, musical, action movie It's a bit of everything from the early 30s And uh, what I mean by pre-code is that in 1934 uh, Hollywood was sort of, well, I mean It it had this this awful thing called the Hayes Code imposed upon it Which was basically, uh, it wasn't officially censorship Because you can't censor under the US Constitution But it was basically, yeah, you can still continue to put what you like in films But if you do us and the, the Catholic League of Decency and all these other kind of, you know, conservative organizations will make sure that your cinema never shows a film again kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so what it meant was that until the mid thirties, Hollywood was producing this incredibly kind of innovative, often surprisingly progressive mm-hmm. kind of, um, boundary pushing content that then suddenly just completely disappeared. And. Madame Satan is a prime example of that, and yeah, a film that we all love. It's Um, fully insane, utterly crackers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I'm digressing into pre-code cinema, and and we're we're here to talk about books and stuff. We
2: are. um, We're here to talk your book, but also I feel like we this could be a nice segue into the fact that you obviously have a passion for history, mm -hmm. right? because yeah. you talked about it quite a bit there. And also, Samuel Peeps, And I also, we did start, before we even started recording, you were telling us how you've done about 500 interviews in the last couple yeah. of weeks. I don't want to ask you the same questions that you've been going over and over again. But I will just ask one possible okay. one that you may have a stock answer for at this point, which is, what is it about Samuel Pepys that captures your imagination so much?
0: Huh, what is it about Samuel Pepys? Well, um, Samuel Pepys, for me, is... An extremely appealing kind of character, not only as a, a reader and a lover of history, but also uh, in kind of surprising ways, as a journalist almost, some of his reportage of, which is what it is really, of things like The Great Fire of London and The Great Plague, are not only among our primary sources for that period in history, but they're just astonishingly vital and raw pieces of writing. You know, this is a man who's writing about historical events, often on the day they happened, you know, and so you'll get these extraordinary details about one of the most turbulent periods in our history in the 1660s, followed by, you know, like went to the pub for lunch, or, you know, <laughs> um, came home, had an argument with wife, you know, went to bed or whatever, and um, have chillblains or something like that. So it is the kind of the big hitters of his diary, things like the story of the Great Fire in London. Everybody really knows. But the most evocative parts for me will be things like, you know, a description of a carriage ride that they take around St. James's Park or, oh, one of my favourite bits... Um, which is when he's oh he uh, he's trying to avoid some plague victims who are begging by the side of the road and then one of them kind of like is a bit like oi and spits at him and then he spends the rest of the day kind of worrying that he's got plague you know just stuff that makes him so real and humanizes him because these were his uh, in the diaries that he wrote between sixteen sixty 1660 and sixteen sixty nine these are his raw unfiltered thoughts not meant to be read by anybody else they were actually written in code uh, as well so you know they're they don't always paint him in a good light, which is also quite fascinating as a reader. His failures are there to see as much as kind of a, the more self-aggrandizing aspects. But yeah, I mean, he's he writes this, this uh, collection of, of diaries, a million odd words, and then he just stops at the age of 36. And um, he lived for over 30 years after he finished them. And so... Um, you know, knowing the little bits about his life, you know, we know the basics, you know what he did after he finished writing his diary, but in nothing like as much detail. And yet the bits that we have paint this kind of tantalising picture of uh, a life full of kind of soaring highs and crushing lows. He um he became an MP uh, and then was then almost immediately deposed. He was arrested for treason three times. He spent time in the Tower of London. Um he kept a lion as a pet briefly. That's the story behind that. Wow. Um he was accused of, ty- of piracy, he was involved in setting up international spying, all of these things. Um and, and we don't have a- anything like the same kind of um you know Detail that we have in pretty much every day of the decade in which he wrote, and so of course I then just thought, well, what if, what if he did continue to keep a diary, and what would I have liked to have seen him do next? You know, and that that led to the book.
2: I, I love that your first thought is, I'd love him to solve a murder.
0: Well, yeah, basically. <laughs> Because <laughs> you know, it's um, yeah, it's a little more exciting than sort of you know went to the office and uh, and mind you, I mean went to the office, pub for lunch, you know, off to see day. Nell Gwyn and a play or whatever. Yeah, perfectly good day. But yes, my piece becomes the sort of detective and almost like a sort of agent of the crown. Yeah, so that sort of fired my imagination too.
1: What I love is that despite, you know, solving a murder, amazing, that's still not actually the most interesting thing he did once you list off all his other achievements or, you know, could have done. Appreciate your bit's (laughs) fiction, as far as we know.
0: Yeah, although we have had a few, like, um, you know, a couple of people have sort of commented on, like, online ads and things going like, well, how do we know this is a real diary? This is not a scam. And I'm like, well, (laughs) you got me, I'm sorry. Yeah, it is a complete scam. It's not his real work. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I do use elements of his his real life in the text. I do um, incorporate those. I also use elements of his life pre-diaries. There's a particular scene, an extremely gruesome scene in it where he has um, surgery. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that really happened to him. Um, Oof. but not when I have it happen. So, you know, my peeps, as I say in the historical notes in the back, is not the peeps. He is a character. Mm. You know, I'm not. I'm not an historian. I'm a lover of history, and so though I did feel it was my duty to create a world that felt as authentic as I could, and to be as well researched as it could be, up to a point, my main duty was to tell a good story.
2: Yeah, that scene, by the way, you did warn (laughs) me about that scene, but wowzers! Did you not just like was your whole body not seizing up as you typed it? As a man, in particular.
0: Butt clenched seriously. <laughs> it was originally I had it sort of discreetly fade to black. And then um, my agent at the time read the book and he he said, you know, love it, but this is a complete cop out. <laughs> show us the scene. And I was like, well, all right. And so um, I researched, I tell you what was worse than writing it, because at least I could take a sort of perverse glee in what I was doing while I wrote it. Worse was the research, because I had to read a lot about pre-anesthetic surgery. There's an amazing book, which you may have heard of, called Butchering Art by Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris. It is absolutely fantastic, but I cannot recommend it as bedtime reading, because it's all about <laughs> the history of surgery before Joseph Lister invented anaesthetic. And um, wow. there's a very, very, very graphic description of the same operation people had in that um, and various other sources too. And yeah, I'm afraid like what I wrote is not at all exaggerated. That really is exactly how the operation was done. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't they couldn't eat or drink. They couldn't, uh, you know, if you were having like, I suppose you're having dental work or something, you could at least get blind drunk, but mm-hmm. he couldn't, he couldn't have anything in the system. So he had to endure it all completely for real. Um, yeah. Which he did in real life, and he he celebrated the anniversary of the operation uh, every year. And in fact, one of the first entries of the diary is his friends coming around to kind of have a kind of boozy party. Brilliant. <laughs> so. God.
2: In your characterization of him, obviously you've drawn from a, a real person to create, but he is a yeah. character. But I yeah. have to say that you painted such a fun kind of mi- almost misplaced for the kind of adventure that he ends up going on character. Yeah. I feel that that makes it so much more relatable because that is exactly what I'd be like on <laughs> that kind of adventure, being like, I don't want to do any of this, this is awful. <laughs> what you Thank you.
0: I know, exactly. I, I mean, I wanted to make him definitely an anti-hero and a kind of relatable hero. And I know he has this sidekick who's a bit more sort of square-jawed, as in yeah. with Will Hewer, who was also a real man. But yeah, my piece is, a, he's a bit of a coward. He's a bit of a wuss. But, you know, the question is ultimately, does he do the right thing anyway? You know, because that, I suppose, is true bravery, is, is mm. being scared and doing it anyway. It's funny, I, just that description you gave there reminded me a little bit of, um, do you remember what Eddie Izzard said about uh, Scooby-Doo? <laughs> that he felt that Shaggy and Scooby uh, were true heroes and very important heroes for American culture because they're cowards. They're complete cowards and um, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're, you know, what they're doing there. They're not brave. Uh, and yet they kind of bumble on through these adventures anyway. And so that makes them extremely relatable. They're very rare among kind of heroic characters. And so, yeah, I suppose there's a touch of that about it, really, isn't there? He Definitely. is he is complete worst, but he does it anyway.
2: And he overcomes yeah. it in the end. I mean, no spoilers, but he steps up when he needs to. And that's the difference, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it was... Um, he does step up when he needs to, and I and I suppose that was another aspect of it, that in certain ways that are particularly problematic for a modern reader, the real Samuel Pepys was, you know, okay, a complex human being. He was, a, you know, a fascinating man. He was extremely clever. He was very witty. He was very, you know, he, he performed an absolutely invaluable service to the historical record by writing the things he did But he was also a bit of a dick, you know, I mean, he's, (laughs) uh, he was, as with many men of his period, he was incredibly misogynistic, you know, he took advantage of his servants in ways that would now, well, I mean, they're ambiguous in the book, but you know, I mean, I think, yeah, if, if, one is a servant working in the household of a powerful person. I am not entirely sure you have much say, you know. If if your master kind of comes onto you, and he did a lot of that, and uh, he he exploited people, he cheated, you know, um, in in a modern sense. And I know we have to be very careful to kind of not place our kind of modern and uh, modern values too much on the past. But nonetheless, I think these are universal things. Yeah, he was also a terrible misogynist, and so therefore. How much do I incorporate that into the book? You know, I was faced with the choice straight on, do I just have him behave in exactly the same way he does in the book? Or does that prevent him from becoming, you know, an acceptable hero in our eyes? And so that was, it was a juggling act there Mm that, um, you know, I did have to kind of decide how I was going to approach that.
1: Well, along those lines, one of the questions that we ask every author that we interview is, if you had to be a character from your book, who would you be and why? Ooh. And I'm very intrigued to hear who you say.
0: <laughs> oh, OK, OK. Wow. Well, think. I think the most badass character in the whole book. Well, OK, that would be Belle. But I think I would be Charlotte. Charlotte Charlotte Devere, because she's so cool. I love her. She has, however, I think it's quite clear... From the backstory Which is hinted at uh, I think she had Quite a difficult past So I think If I could Like just drop Into any character At the point In which we see him In the book See Ben in the book It would be her Um, Otherwise I I suppose will hear He's a bit of a He's a bit of a lunk Um, You know He's perhaps not A great deal Going on upstairs But he's a He's a good guy And square-jawed And you know Yeah it'd be quite fun To be also
1: We'll allow you To just drop in As the character That's fine
0: Yeah maybe I can sort of Yeah maybe that can be a sort of um, I could try before I buy just a little sort yeah. of I'll be this character for a while and
1: exactly yeah for sure so you touched a little bit on your writing process mm-hmm. and how you went about deciding to write about Samuel Pepys but what do you generally enjoy the most about the writing process and the least as well
0: oh I'm
1: happy to say
0: okay I think most and the least I think they would actually have the same answer, which is the complete control and responsibility. Because as a writer, as opposed to being a filmmaker, which is the discipline I'm much more familiar with, it's all on you. There's nobody else, and you know if you're directing, notwithstanding the sort of you know the realities of financing and all sorts of boring things like that. Basically, the box stops with you. You know, it is your vision. But you are working with a team of immensely talented people, all of whom bring their own kind of ideas and, and skills to the table. You know, like I could, I could say to a costume designer, I want, I want this, you know, outfit to look a bit like that, but they are the one who's going to create something amazing and in a way that I would never have thought of. That's not true at all for books. It is, it is, it is you sitting there alone hammering out this story and these characters and these words all by yourself and. Yes, of course, there are other people who input the work of very skilled editors and, and, and trusted kind of beta readers and things like that. But, you know, that's a really small slice of the pie. The responsibility is on you. And that is both the most freeing thing. No budget as well. You can do whatever you like. It's amazing. But at the same time, <laughs> it's really scary. It's like it's that spotlight is shining purely on you and it's very it's very exposing as a creator there's nothing to hide
2: behind i have to say i think your experience as a filmmaker translates so well in this book because it feels like a a theatrical you know big budget film like i feel like i i could see you know i was watching it rather than reading it in my mind when you wrote it was it like you were watching a film and basically writing it up or how did you think in your head absolutely
0: i i i don't know any other way to write to be honest with you i kind of had to do it shot for shot in my mind and uh, i had to head cast it and all that kind of things you know I had we should to talk of,
2: casting i want to know we should we- should mm.
0: uh it's funny when i when i first did the synopsis um my i'm married to um a writer called ava glass um she also goes by other names but that's the name for the moment um who is an incredible writer of many books and far more experienced than i am and uh i showed her the synopsis and kind of you know like Paced up and down outside like a, like a fifties delivery room, you know. Um, <laughs> and then I kind of said, "Well, so what do you think?" And she said, "I think it's really good. It's just it, it's a little long." And I said, well, "Well, what do you mean?" She said, "Well, it's thirty-six pages long." <laughs> I know. And I was like, "Well, how long are book synopses usually?" And she said, "Well, it's usually a page." So I was like, <laughs> "I basically did a scene breakdown, right which is what you do for, for for a movie, you know." I even did episode arcs. So I like, this is the end of episode one, this is two, It's like, it was like a five-part thing. And so I had like my A story and my B story and all this kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> I had no idea. It's basically I'm like the dog meme, you know, when it's like floating around <laughs> in space or it's playing piano. I have no idea what I'm doing, but, you know, I'm I pleased people think it turned out well.
2: Now you've been getting fantastic reviews. I thought it was Independence Book of the Month, which is amazing.
0: That was lovely. I know um, Independence Sunday Times we just heard, um, and various other. Although, yeah, maybe I shouldn't say that it's out because what if they don't like it? Anyway, um, <laughs> lots of lovely reviews, which I'm very very grateful. Um, it's difficult to get reviews as as a debut. And yeah, this is all absolutely testament to the kind of team who has been working on this.
2: It's a testament to you and your talent, Jack. Come on. I was going to say, a, a little bit
1: to you, I'd say. Yes.
0: <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll I'll take a little bit of it, but only a little. Okay. <laughs>
1: okay. So on the topic of books, obviously yeah. you're clearly a big film man, but mm-hmm. I'm guessing you do read the occasional book. What was the last book that you read and loved?
0: Read and loved. I think the last book I read and loved was the moving finger by Agatha Christie.
1: Oh great answer you know your audience clearly
0: <laughs> <laughs> I um I mean I've you know long long been very familiar with Agatha Christie and you know the series and the films and everything but the books themselves I came relatively late to for various reasons, but I just sort of, you know, one day I picked up The Murder of Roger Ackroyd and um, somehow that was one I'd never seen. So I I never saw it on TV, you know, I didn't see the Day of version, anything like that. And um, I got to the end I was like, Sorry, what? <laughs> so good. It's a good one. Wait, you can't do that. Well, she did. Um, and then I was just absolutely hooked and I sort of mainlined them, you know, ever since really. But yes, The Moving Finger was the last book I read that I absolutely adored. It also has an amazing audiobook narrated by Richard D. Grant, who... Um, should just narrate everything. He's absolutely perfect. And um, it, it, for me, encapsulates how she created, she had this habit of creating a kind of contained world in all of her stories. You know, um, sometimes sometimes it was like a locked room mystery sort of thing. But even when it wasn't so much that, the characters who uh, just kind of exist in the orbit of whatever's going on, who are absolutely irresistible and completely follow the adage that, you know, there are no minor characters in a book, you should... You should approach minor mm. characters as people who could have their own books, they just haven't been written. And I can't think of any book for which that's more true than The Moving Finger. Actually. It's a magnificent piece of work.
2: That's a great shout. Can't go wrong with Agatha yeah. Christie. Yes, Sarah's <laughs> made
1: Frankie's day.
2: <laughs> he knows what he's doing, he knows what, how he's to have to please a crowd. <laughs> <laughs>
0: he even got David Suchet in there somewhere. I know.
2: But, yeah. Thank <laughs> you so much. On the subject of obviously, you have clearly have great taste in books. So, Thanks. what book would you be buried with? <sighs>
0: this is difficult this is really difficult okay so i might be overthinking this but right. for it to matter to me we have to assume that there's an afterlife of some kind mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. let's assume that let's say that sort of various ancient mythologies are right and you're going to have to spend quite a while on the journey maybe you know it's the, the river styx is that, that that's the sort of multi-stop journey that's going to mm. take a while so i would like to take with me the 2009 translation of the Arabian Nights, which was published in an absolutely magnificent three-volume edition, which I have. Um, It was the first new translation since Sir Richard Burton's in the 1880s. And it's an absolute revelation, because much like Peef's diary, actually, and that's a whole other conversation, but a in the original 19th century translations, a lot was left out. A lot was kind of censored from these texts. And um yeah, it is both a kind of magnificently kind of readable and fascinating work in itself, but the translation itself is also brilliant. Salman Rushdie called the... Um, the Arabian Nights, an ocean of stories that you dip into over a lifetime. And I think that's a beautiful description. And so, yeah, if I'm going to have to spend a few millennia in a boat, um, I think I'll take that.
2: Great answer. Yeah, that was very well thought
0: out. <laughs> what, what what were your choices? Or do they change week to week? <laughs>
2: look hey now who's interviewing who here? i know
0: i'm sorry <laughs> i'm sorry
1: <laughs> it's, yeah. i can't actually remember what frankie's choice was we have discussed this haven't we We have
2: yeah i think yeah. it probably was some sort of agatha christie for a, a dip- Take a pick an omnibus thing on it, staying on brand really omnibus
0: edition if you take a kid on, then you can just load them all there There
2: you go basically yeah. all of the poirot ones maybe
0: obviously
2: yeah. Yeah. sarah was yours she who shall not be named <gasps> yeah mine,
1: mine would be uh, harry potter yeah. um not because I support JK Rowling let's just, just
2: swiftly move past this I should have said actually before we um, we stuck we buried you um it's because yeah. unfortunately you died on death row I forgot oh, to no. mention that yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. what do you think you did
0: Oh, I, I okay. I think it was probably in some banana republic somewhere, and I, I I transgressed some local law that I had no idea, and so the generalissimo arrested me and threw me in jail. And he didn't he didn't like I don't know. Maybe I made a joke trying to be kind of um, you know charming and personable, and he took offence, and that's it.
2: Yeah, that seems like a, a death row worthy offence. Yeah. yeah, sorry I don't
1: about know. that. I mean, you could swing it as some sort of treason. I'm sure.
0: Probably, probably. Like he- yeah, like pinks, yeah. exactly. Yeah. He got let off several times, but yeah. <laughs> got on the wrong side of various kings.
2: Uh, unfortunately, you weren't so lucky. I'm really sorry, Jack. Uh, uh, okay. But the good news is, before they killed you, <laughs> which gets super dark, this story. Um, Congrats.
0: it is called Red and Berry, to be fair. <laughs> it's I mean, true. includes the name. Uh, but
2: the good news is, before you were killed, you got to have your, a death row meal. You got to pick whatever oh. you wanted to have. What did you, ha- what'd you go for?
0: Mm. Okay. Okay, well, th- herein lies a small dilemma. I think my my choice would be like let's assume they have a a really great chef in this in this kind mm-hmm. of little dictatorship. <laughs> um, I would like some uh, fresh pasta with truffle butter, uh, maybe a yeah. lovely kind of shaving of parmesan on the top or something like that, mm-hmm. and some really nice red wine on the side, maybe some fresh bread. But the dilemma comes in the fact that. If if we assume that at least my poor wife is allowed to stand by the gallows with a hanky in hand, she is one of the unfortunates who um, are genetically predisposed to hate the smell of truffles. Did you know it's like coriander? Um, to some people, coriander tastes like soap, and it's because yeah. it's a genetic thing. And it's the same with truffles. To me, truffles smell like fresh rain on a forest floor. It's mm. it's almost a transcendent smell if I mm. ha- inhale them. It's amazing. To her, they literally smell like pee. <laughs> so, like, mm-hmm. if they're leaving the window open, in this prison, while they cook this she'll be like, "Sorry, babe, I'm off. Good luck. I'll see you later." Or <laughs> well, your
2: last breath as you've got is just a blast of truffle <laughs> <and> everything <laughs> Exactly.
0: So, like, yeah, I'll, I'll see if I can kind of eat them in privacy, and and that will be, yeah, you know, that'll be it. But yeah, I, I think I think that will be. My, if I could choose anything, that would be my last meal great choice
2: and we we can give your lovely wife a gas mask or something to wear perhaps they're quite fashionable these days we can get that's something. true
0: yeah yeah, yeah maybe although she's she's quite she does quite a good line in, in um paper fans so she can sort of have one of those in touch of her face
2: yeah there you go opting away
0: gorgeous. the yeah the, the, the smell of the truffles and the tears at the same time so be on the train. And on, did Dave. you do you ever see or read rather uh it's a beast the Nigella Lawson book that mm-hmm. has A section on it about death row meals.
2: I haven't read it. I remember you said it. I've seen
0: it. Absolutely fascinating. Basically, she says that before they kind of realized that it was probably in poor taste or actually probably got, you know sued for it or something, but there was a, um, a particular American state. I'm not quite sure which one, but they used to put on like the website of the Department of Corrections. They used to have a page that just simply listed the death row meals of mm. its inmates. Mm. And it was fascinating. Obviously incredibly morbid, but very kind of sad, but very revealing about mm. what the choices were. Because mm. of course it was all comfort food. And also quite revealing socioeconomically, you know, because it would be like people would choose burger and milkshake, but there'd be an awful lot of like soul food and things like that. Yeah. Uh, that you think, you know, come from, you know, overwhelmingly a kind of poor black demographic. And you think, Oh God, there's social history right there in front of you. Yeah. So yeah. And check it out if you haven't. It is oh, sobering and fascinating and, you know, awful, but also kind of uh, moving as well. Really yeah. fascinating.
2: I mean, any, you don't need to twist my arm to do, get involved with anything, Nigella. She is I know, absolutely a, yeah. a goddess.
0: But the, the absolute domestic goddess.
2: But also, funny you mentioned that Sarah um, and my our friend Hannah for my birthday got me a recipe book that is made up of death row meals from oh, real invades. No way! Yeah, which is oh amazing. It's a have, thing. Have Who you knew? made anything? I haven't yet, but I re- I'm going to. Maybe I should just do a full banquet of like as many of them as I can.
0: Yeah, everyone who comes has to wear like black.
2: <laughs> they have to sit in a very Got uncomfortable it. chair.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's <laughs> straps on the arms. Yeah. It's to <laughs> <like get laughs> a very dark place. For a
2: Always <laughs> does. Always <laughs> does. <laughs> Worth oh. it. And one last question before, mm-hmm. and then we will let you go because we've taken up so much of your time already, but you obviously you read a lot, you hmm. you write a lot, you uh, do a load of films, and obviously crime is of an interest to you as an Agatha Christie yes. fan and, and many other genres and writers. What crime genre are you sick of at this point?
0: Oh, crime crime genre in particular.
2: Or, yeah, or trope. Or trope. trope. Okay. Sorry, yeah. I, I didn't say that right.
0: Um, okay, in terms of historical fiction, which is what I write, I can't stand it when people feel the need to use all their research on the page. And I get it. I get it. There's so much research involved. You want honestly, the stuff I had to research for this, never mind kind of, you know, live bladder surgery and things like that. I mean, I researched, oh, street layouts and, you know, 17th century gangs and food, so much research into food, the history of ice cream. That was a good one. You know, all these kind of things. But uh, the, the, I spent the longest on the history of the pencil, which was surprisingly difficult to find out and incredibly boring. But, you know, <laughs> I had books and books and books of research. And of course I wanted to use it all. But the thing about research in historical fiction is you have to just read and, read and read and read and read and read, and then put the damn thing away and just write it. And what I don't like is when writers don't have the discipline to do that. Um, I once read a, a book which shall remain nameless, but it's uh, not a top series, but a kind of, you know, a known series. And there was um, a scene in it when the main character is racing across Tudor London and, you know, he's got, he's got to get someone before something terrible happens, and what should be a really exciting moment in the book for me was reared by the fact that the author kept having to stop and describe exactly what is sold on each street, you know. And, and now we turn into, uh, you know, Cheapside where the goldsmiths are selling their wares or whatever, you know. And just and it was so distracting for me because you could tell that the writer was extremely proud of the fact that they knew all these individual shops on the street. But it just took me right out of the world. And so, yeah, I think over a search is probably the thing that bores me most in historical.
2: That makes sense. I also wanted to say, while you said you were reading maps, you got two shout-outs for Guildford in the book. I gave a little cheer each time I read them. <laughs> Yay, Guildford! <laughs> yes,
0: Guildford. Peeps went to Guildford a few times. It appears in this real diary. And in fact, the Red Lion, where he stays briefly in my book, is, is a place that he did stay. If for real, I can't remember whether... That was a place he didn't like because he got fleas there. He was always getting fleas in, in <laughs> bed lice and things. Uh, or if he liked it, I'm sorry to, to malign that. Basically, medieval trip advisor or, or restoration <laughs> trip advisor is going to go mad for this. But um, yeah.
2: I, I can't imagine we have fleas
0: in Guildford. My in goodness. Guildford. <laughs> in this town. Oh,
2: no. In this economy.
0: I should. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> my <laughs> reputation. exactly <apparently.
2: laughs> Well, Jack, it's been a true delight as always to speak to you. Oh, it's been so
0: much fun. Thank you so much for having me on. I I'm, Yeah, I, I could talk for another hour.
2: I could listen for another hour, <laughs> but unfortunately we can't. But one last question. Yes. Are you working on any other books at the moment?
0: Okay, I'm, I'm playing with the peeps too. Uh, <laughs> I do actually have a chapter written, which begins in... Um, uh, well, it's, it begins with Nell Gwyn's return to the stage after a few years absence. And I had great fun constructing this kind of, uh, you know, jury lane in the summer of 69. No, the winter of 69, because um, it is by then the snow has fallen and then London is in the grip of it huge frost and everything and it's it's great fun to construct I'm not entirely sure where it's going next um, and I'm also going to wait and see a little bit how the book does um, because it is a big thing to take on something like this and I'm working on other stuff too I'm working on film projects and there's other things going on so I hope this book will continue past its infancy and if it does yes Peeps 2 will be out in a couple of years
2: I hope so too I'm not ready to say goodbye to them yet I want them to come back
0: (laughs) well there's stuff that happens in his life like for real, that I'm going to have to make some decisions about. I mean, no spoilers, but yeah, anyone who knows the real peeps knows there's some pretty serious stuff coming up and I'm going to have to make a big decision. Do I portray that or not? Or do I kind of use my get on a jail free card of, hey, not a historian, I'm a writer who loves history, and maybe move the timeline around a bit. Oh,
1: so exciting. Oh, what a tease to end on. Well, thank you.
0: (laughs) You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And where can people follow you on social media?
0: I'm at Jack Dewars, that's J-E-W-E-R-S um, on Twitter. And uh, I do have an official Facebook, but it hasn't been updated since about 2017. Um, same <laughs> hashtag, same handle on Instagram as well.
1: Brilliant, thank you. And Frankie, where can people follow us on social media? No, see, Jack,
2: Sarah's doing this because she forgets the name of our podcast 90% of the time. (laughs) So people can follow us on social media at Red and Berry Podcast. If you just search that, you'll show up and at least someone will know what it is then. There can't be
0: that many podcasts called Red and Berry.
2: I was shocked that there isn't, to be honest with you. I thought... Mm. That's a great name.
0: It's really good. Although I do keep calling it Dead and Buried, which makes it sound more does Sarah. than it already is.
1: Or... Yeah, that's where my issue comes in. I once spent several minutes searching Dead and Buried on Instagram and getting okay. very confused. Okay. Um, so, yeah, moving on from that very quickly. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Thank you so much, Jack, for joining us. It's been fantastic.
0: It's been wonderful, thank
1: you. Thanks,
2: everybody, and come back soon. I don't know how to end these student podcasts. <laughs> Bye. 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 <laughs>
0: Hi folks, this is Tony Black, co-host and producer of Between the Notes, a podcast all about the music of film and television. Myself and co-host Sean Wilson
1: delve into a range of topics including brand new film school releases. So four, four notes can, can communicate the primal vengeance and rage of Robert Pattinson's, uh, Pattinson's I should say, uh, interpretation of Batman,
0: yeah. Focuses on specific composers such as Ennio Morricone. Just to put this in context, Gwyneth Paltrow
1: got an Oscar before Ennio Morricone did. I mean, how does that... <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how does that work?
0: And special episodes focusing on topics like adventure movie scores. I think
1: that principle is consistent all the way through Conan because it has to be, because it, it, it is an opera in which the music is the dialogue. We're available on all podcast platforms and on
0: social media at Between Notes Pod on Twitter and Facebook. So please subscribe, get in touch, and join us to discuss the sounds of cinema and television. Between the Notes. <laughs>